0: Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Stephen J. Hartnett to discuss his book, A World of Turmoil, The United States, China, and Taiwan in the Long Cold War. Thanks for tuning in. The United States, the People's Republic of China, and Taiwan have danced on the knife's edge of war for more than 70 years. A work of sweeping historical vision, A World of Turmoil offers five case studies of critical moments in these relationships. The end of World War II and the start of the Long Cold War, the almost nuclear war over the Chimoy Islands in 1954-55, the detente, deceptions, and denials surrounding the 1972 Shanghai communique, the Taiwan Strait Crisis of 1995-96, and the rise of post-colonial nationalism in contemporary Taiwan. In this book, Hartnett explores how each country's communication style structured these events and reveals that leaders in all three nations have fallen back on crippling stereotypes and self-serving denials in their diplomacy the first study of its kind, this provocative book merges history, rhetorical criticism, and advocacy in a tour de force of international scholarship. By mapping the history of miscommunication between the United States, China, and Taiwan, a world of turmoil shows where and how these entwined relationships have gone wrong, clearing the way for renewed dialogue, enhanced trust, and new understandings. I'm excited to be joined by Stephen J. Hartnett to discuss a world of turmoil today. Dr. Hartnett is a professor in the communication department at the University of Colorado Denver. He served as the 2017 president of the National Communication Association and is the co-founder and co-organizer of the Biennial Conference on Communication, Media and Governance in the Age of Globalization and the Shenzhen Forum on Communication Innovation. New Media, and Digital Journalism. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Kurt. It's an honor to be here. I'm really excited to discuss your book because it's one of those that the press issues that falls, you know, somewhat far outside of my area of expertise. And I love to get in touch with experts and hear about the work they're doing on these fields that I know sort of broadly, you know, you know, from the media in general. And I feel like, you know, especially during the Trump years, there was a lot of discussion about the US-China relationship. And for those of us like me who were sort of seeing that peripherally, seeing it reported just in bits and pieces, it was a little bit unclear what role Taiwan played in that struggle. And it's interesting to encounter in your book that this is actually a sort of fault line or a powder keg. Um, what the U.S. does with Taiwan and what Taiwan has to say about its relationship with China might potentially be very explosive. Could you give us a little sense of how tensions came to that point?
1: Oh, Kurt, that's a great question. And before I answer the historical part of it, I just want to echo what you said about how Trump is kind of the, the, the shadow hanging over this book, right? the fear of Trump. None of us trusted him as an international leader. And there was great fear uh, among scholars within the State Department, even within the Department of Defense, that Trump was going to kind of bumble America into a war we didn't want to fight. So I think it's really insightful on your part that you mentioned Trump in your introduction because he, he hangs over the book like a shadow. So having said that, though, I'm going to go back now to your, your question. You know, why is Taiwan a tripwire? And to answer that question, you have to go back, Kurt, to the end of World War II. Your listeners will probably remember that World War II ended in Asia in August of 1945. And while Americans were thrilled that the war was over, the end of World War II was actually the beginning of the civil war in China, in which the communists and Mao Zedong were fighting against Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. And by 1949, the nationalists had been kicked off the mainland and they fled to what was then called the island of Formosa what we now call Taiwan. And so ever since 1949, the communists have wanted Taiwan and the nationalists supported by America have held out against them. So it was a constant source of tension during the Cold War, all through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And even today, America is sending weapons and money to Taiwan, which angers China greatly. So within the world of international politics, most people who look at Asia think that Taiwan is the tripwire for what could become the next major international war.
0: Super useful to have that sort of capsule history of how these tensions came to be. I wonder if you could expand a little bit by describing what you call in the book, the sort of one China thinking that goes on. So to go back to the end again of World War II
1: and the Chinese Civil War, when Chairman Mao and the communists won the Civil War, their single most important imperative was to unite China. You'll remember that China had been colonized for centuries, right? The Russians invaded at one point, Uh, the Mongolians invaded, the French and the British and the Americans. China was always getting carved up by foreign powers. And so the Chinese are very sensitive to these incursions by imperial powers. Because of that, when the communists won the Civil War, the first and most important promise they made to the people of China was that we are going to reunite our country under our own flag. And what that meant is that they wanted Hong Kong back from the British, they wanted Tibet back, they wanted the region that we now call Xinjiang back, they wanted Inner Mongolia, and they wanted Taiwan. And within the thinking of the Communist Party, when they say one China, what they mean is a united Chinese empire, a rebuilt empire in which all the parts of the nation that were taken away by foreign powers have been reunited. Now, the problem is that no one on Taiwan agrees with this principle. So whenever you hear the Chinese Communist Party say one China to the people on Taiwan, that's a recipe for invasion and annexation. So that term is a really hotly contested term within international relations.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned some of the other disputed territories here, you know, Hong Kong, Tibet, those other places, because it seems like it's difficult to say as the international community looks at Taiwan, they see this sort of flashpoint. We spent a lot of time in 2020 thinking about Hong Kong and what was going on there all through those tensions. So I think it's important that we remember how complex this is you know, from all these individual perspectives, and then to be faced with this sort of one China policy of thinking about all of those different territories as properly belonging under Chinese rule. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how that one China thinking has developed into the kind of rhetoric that you look at in the book. We'll be talking a lot about the way these different nations present themselves and communicate with one another. What does that mean you know, when, it, when it comes to what Chinese leaders say and how they, how they express themselves and communicate with other nations to come to it from that one China perspective?
1: Yeah, Kurt, that's a great question. And, and I'm glad that you framed your question by mentioning Hong Kong, because that's probably the most obvious example for most of your listeners today, right? Think about, so Hong Kong was a rock colonized by the British beginning in 1839. They took that land from China and then they developed it over hundreds of years and turned it into one of the world's great cities. And now China wants it back. And so they're crushing free speech there. They're crushing democratic elections there. They're, they're taking the once free and independent city of Hong Kong and they're making it a Chinese city. And the Communist Party is calling that part of its one China system. Now for a long time, what they said is they they promised the people of Hong Kong, one country, two systems. That's one of their key phrases, one country, two systems. And the idea there was that we can have a communist mainland China and a democratic and capitalist Hong Kong. So different systems, albeit united under the flag of China. Now for the people of Taiwan, when they look at what the communist party is doing to Hong Kong, they say to themselves, well, gosh, that one country, two systems lie is clearly a lie, isn't it? So what's happened because of the communists' actions in Hong Kong, it's undermined the claims they're making about Taiwan. And so since the Umbrella Revolution hit Hong Kong, the Taiwanese people have moved even more consistently and in a hard manner towards independence from China because they know that phrase, one country, two systems, just is not applicable.
0: Could you say a little bit as we move into thinking about Taiwan more specifically about their history of independence and how they have presented themselves in the wake of World War II, having split from the communist Chinese, how has Taiwan presented itself both to itself and then sort of on the international stage?
1: Remember that the communists kicked the nationalists off of mainland China finally in 1949. But during World War II, the Nationalist Party had set up military bases. Once the Americans kicked the colonial Japanese out, then Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists move into Formosa. And they did so in an incredibly brutal manner, just slaughtering the local peasants. And so in 1947, there was a dramatic rebellion in Taiwan, where the indigenous Taiwanese people rose up against Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists fighting for independence. And Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists slaughtered over 20,000 indigenous Taiwanese. So ever since 1947 and that, that rebellion, Taiwanese culture has simmered with this sense of not only do we want our independence from our former Japanese colonizers and from our current nationalist colonizers. And now from the threat of the Chinese communist colonizers from the mainland. I mean, think about this. The Taiwanese people feel like they've been triply colonized, right, by Chiang Kai-shek, Mao Zedong, and the Japanese empire. So within Taiwan, there's been this long-standing desire for national independence. And what happened over the years after the end of World War II is the Taiwanese people slowly but surely fought for their rights, fought for democracy, And they were successful and had their first open, free, and fair democratic election for the presidency in 1996. And since then, Taiwan has blossomed into one of the great success stories in Asia, where it's just this fantastic democratic society with a thriving free press. And the Taiwanese people are very defensive of their independence and their freedom. And so when they hear the Communist Party of China say, one country, two systems, it just sends them over the edge it drives them crazy because they don't want to be recolonized they want the independence that they've been fighting for ever since that first rebellion in
0: 1947 i'm glad you concluded your answer back where you started in 1947 with that first sort of move for independence because it also marks you, know, you think of the end of World War II, and we're accustomed, I think, in the West to you know, thinking about the beginning of the Cold War and the long struggle against communism and the way that it plays out in all of these different proxy spaces, you know, whether it's in Vietnam or South America. But I think that the US is is also an important part of that story of Taiwanese independence, or it also plays, you know, an important role in the struggles that are going on there. Could you say a little bit about what it looked like then and how, and how the U.S. has been involved in what's happening in Taiwan since the end of World War II? You
1: know, once Mao and the communists clearly were about to win the civil war, America invested great resources in supporting Chiang Kai-shek's retreat to Taiwan. And so all the way back to the end of the World War II, America saw Taiwan as its base For fighting communism in Asia. So during the Korean War, for example, we used Taiwan as a staging ground for our navy and air force. And again, during the Vietnam War, Taiwan was a crucial military resource to the U.S. in fighting communism. So Taiwan has historically, there's there's this famous quote from General Douglas MacArthur referred to Taiwan as an unsinkable aircraft carrier. It's kind of a crass line, right? Because what it says is we don't care about the people of Taiwan, we just want the land, which is functional for air bases and naval bases. And so we've always treated Taiwan as our own private landing strip in Asia. And part of what's so interesting about Taiwan now is the younger generation desperately wants out of that relationship. They want democracy, they want free speech, Uh, They love our democratic values, but they don't want to just be another American landing strip or naval base in the Pacific. They want their own independent rights free from the legacy of the Cold War.
0: I love that MacArthur quote, because in the same way that you've described the one China policy sort of driving Chinese rhetoric for decades after the war. It seems like that quote is such a great encapsulation of the way that you describe the US presence there, which is to sort of attempt to please all parties while ultimately pursuing its own self-interest. Could you elaborate a little bit on how the US describes its relationship in Taiwan and the way that our foreign policy is perceived there?
1: Yeah, Kurt, that's one of the... (laughs) This is one of the great mysteries of American foreign policies, right? What is America's relationship to Taiwan? And to answer that question, you've got to go back to the end of the Nixon and Ford years and the beginning of the Jimmy Carter years. We were estranged from China during the Cold War, and it wasn't until 1972 that U.S. President Richard Nixon went to Beijing to try to form peace between the United States and China. And it's important to remember that Nixon did that, not because he particularly respected the Chinese people or their culture. He just wanted an ally to help hem in the Russians, right? So this was was part of Nixon's version of geopolitics, is to get China to align with America against Russia. All of this culminated in 1979, when the United States and the People's Republic of China agreed to normalize relations. And what that meant, the cost of our normalizing relations is America had to forswear its relationship with Taiwan. So we cut Taiwan loose. But when Jimmy Carter first entered the White House, the US Congress was so angered by this decision to let Taiwan go that the Congress passed something called the Taiwan Relations Act, the TRA. And the Taiwan Relations Act was passed as a law saying that America must support Taiwan if it is attacked by China. And there's a number of other very complicated nuances to the Taiwan Relations Act. But what it, what it did, Kurt, is it created a dual track policy where America was formally in a relationship with China and formally renouncing Taiwan as an independent nation. And yet at the same time, we were supporting Taiwan as a cultural entity and we set up a kind of faux embassy in Taipei and we continue to send them weapons and we continue to send them money. And so we have this dual track policy where we're we're trying to have our cake and eat it too, where we support Taiwan, but we want relationships with China. And so what this means is that if you ask people in China and Taiwan, what is America's relationship with either of your countries, nobody knows. And the reason they don't know is because it's so complicated and so contradictory that we're trying to have our cake needed, too. And that's always been the case since 1979.
0: This has been really great, I think, for for listeners who are less well versed in the intricate and complicated nuances of what the history in this region and the different tensions that are going on. And the U.S.'s role, I mean, that that idea of having our cake and eat it, too, it, it does explain so much about thinking back to some of the case studies that you look at in the book, whether it's the Clinton years or some of the Trump administration dealings where we're trying to say one thing and do another and trying to maintain a posture of toughness with China, but also support you know, allies in the region or whatever the case might be. I wonder if we could think a little bit about the style and subject of the book a little more specifically now that we've got a little bit of the actual history uh, out of the way by thinking a bit about the historiography. One of the things that I found really interesting in your book is this desire to talk about the long Cold War. And I've not encountered that um, phrasing in a lot of scholarship. Granted, I don't read a ton in this area but it feels like it's a move that you're making that deserves a little bit of attention why the long cold war and how does you know thinking about that period over you know temporal bounds help you in your work
1: and that really gets to the kind of theory of how do you write history right you and you use the nice word historiography which is the theory of how we write history and in terms of the Cold War, you think about the fact that, you know, 99% of the books that have ever been written about the Cold War assume that the Cold War began roughly around 1946, right? When Winston Churchill gives his famous Iron Curtain speech, or maybe 1947 when President Truman gives his, his famous aid to Greece and Turkey speech, right, which became called the Truman Doctrine, so most people think the Cold War began in 1946 or 1947. And most people then would think that it ended roughly in 1989, right? When parts of the Berlin Wall started to come down and when Russia was imploding. And so that kind of thinking gives you a very discreet sense of time, right? 1947 to 1989. If you talk about a long Cold War, what that suggests is in fact, all of the tension all of the underlying dilemmas that led to what we call the Cold War, in fact, began 50 years before this and continue on today after 1989. So when you say the Long Cold War, what it it does is it expands the timeframe. So instead of 1947 to 1989, it enables us to think of what happened before 47 and what happened after 89. The second thing that Long Cold War does, occur as a term, is again, if you go back and if you look at the historiography, about 99% of the books written on the Cold War address Europe. Most people think of the Cold War as a fight between the Soviet Union and the United States, in which Central Europe is collateral damage, or maybe parts of Africa are collateral damage. The long Cold War, as a phrase, also means we're not only expanding our time, but we're expanding our space. And the Cold War really started and is still going on in Asia. So when you say the Long Cold War, it does two things. It expands the time frame and it expands the geographic space of consideration. And what that does is it it opens up the possibility of writing something that approaches regional or even global history. So it it, it leads to a much more ambitious kind of history.
0: I think another thing that it seems to do in your book is it it allows for you to take seriously the sort of... One of the things that's that I've always sort of found interesting about discussions of the Cold War is how difficult it is to triangulate around the word war. Like, you know, is the Vietnam War part of the Cold War? Is it is, you know, is there military conflict that is part of the Cold War, or is this a cultural struggle for supremacy of democracy in the face of communism? And I think that though in the same way that you're broadening the the temporal scale, you're also looking very Intensely, because you're, you're a rhetorician or you're studying your rhetoric and, and communication, you're looking intensely at how does how does what we say and the kind of culture we produce perpetuate a struggle, uh, an ideological struggle above and beyond whatever the sort of moment when we're actually firing bullets and missiles at each other.
1: Yeah, Kurt, that's really insightful on your part to, to notice that you know when we say the phrase "long cold war," bullets are probably the least important part of it, right? This, the real significance of it is it's a different economic system. We've got clashing uh, political systems. We've got clashing ideologies. We've got incredibly different cultural systems. So the long cold war is, is this clash of worldviews, really clash of, of lifestyle. And this is why, you know, to go back, to circle back to your first comment about Trump, This is why Trump has been so damaging to America's foreign policy. Uh, I can tell you, Kurt, I've been going to Asia now every summer for 15 years. And it used to be, you know, back during uh, the early Obama years, for example, people in China and Taiwan, when you sat down with them at dinner or over drinks, they were always so excited to talk about democracy. They wanted democracy. They thought it was cool. They thought it was exciting. And in recent years, when you go to China, What they do now is they mock America and they say things like, gosh, and I feel so bad for you living living in a country where a guy like Trump is the president. And what that does is it shows you how the long cold war is really about perception, right? It's about how your way of life is perceived, how your key ideas are perceived. And if the American president is making a mockery of democracy, then that hurts America's national image everywhere. And this is why during the Cold War, we were so careful about how we communicated with our allies because we wanted America to, to look like this positive example to the world. And I'm afraid, Kurt, that we've, we've lost some of that in recent years.
0: You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Stephen Hartnett, author of A World of Turmoil, The United States, China, and Taiwan in the Long Cold War. You know, it's interesting, your point about Perception in the world and, and how in Asia the you know the Trump years have sort of damaged the idea, the very idea of democracy by putting forth this figurehead that you know made a mockery of the system and made us all look a fool on the world stage. One you mentioned this in the book a few times, and and I think it's it's an interesting conflict because is it not the case that Xi Jinping has a sort of similar kind of ideological orientation, but a, plays a different role on the nation state on the on the global stage.
1: Yeah, you've you've touched there Kurt on a really interesting moment, right, in global politics that Trump's America first rhetoric, his brash nationalism, his public rudeness, his anti-diplomatic diplomacy, all of that matches Xi Jinping almost perfectly, right? Xi Jinping has his great China dream. He wants to rejuvenate China. It's interesting to to think how much Xi Jinping and Donald Trump mirror each other, right? They're both strong men. They both live in the past. They're both driven by nostalgia. They're both driven by fear. They both embody a kind of toxic masculinity. And it's unfortunate that they came to power at the same time because the two of them, coupled led to this really toxic rhetorical environment, right? Where America and China were not listening to each other. We were not speaking with each other. And our relationship really took a nosedive. And to go back now to the book, the combination of Xi Jinping and Donald Trump has really left Taiwan in a hard place, right? Because Xi Jinping is threatening to invade. Trump is threatening war. If anything goes wrong in East Asia, it's the Taiwanese people who will pay the price. And so it's been very alarming for them to watch this escalation of rhetoric between Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. So it's a very frightening time to live in Taiwan.
0: What does that look like in the kind of communication that you're studying? So like, could you give some examples of what a kind of communication from the US or from China that would have that sort of effect on Taiwan? And then maybe a little thinking about like what, how that plays out in Taiwanese culture?
1: Sure. Well, you know, again, it's it's important for American listeners to understand that despite all of our differences, the Chinese government functions very much like the American government in the sense that, you know, Xi Jinping has his messaging offices. He has his outlets. He can task various military leaders or economic leaders with making statements in the press that convey his wishes, right? So in the same way that The president could have, for example, the Secretary of State or an admiral in the Navy make a statement in the press that sends a signal to China. The Chinese government does the same thing. So here, let's look at an example. Donald Trump, in order to send a message to China, sold billions of dollars worth of weapons to the Taiwanese. When that weapons sale was announced, the Communist Party went to one of its key nationalist outlets. This is a newspaper called the Global Times. And in the Global Times, they had a roundtable of military leaders. These are gentlemen from the the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. And they had a roundtable, which the Global Times then published, in which each of the speakers called for war against Taiwan as a response to President Trump. Now, the people of Taiwan, when they read that in the paper, they think to themselves, oh, my gosh, Trump is sending a signal to China by selling us weapons. China is sending a signal to Trump by saying they're going to invade Taiwan. Can you see how, as a a Taiwanese citizen, you just feel like you're being used in the middle of that game? So what it does for the Taiwanese is it, it just creates this great sense of uncertainty. Is America our friend and ally, or is America just using us to get to China? And when China says crazy things like let's go to war, are they saying that just to annoy the Americans or are they actually going to invade? So what this means is that the Taiwanese people live with this great sense of uncertainty about both China's intentions and America's intentions.
0: How does that play out in like Taiwanese cultural productions?
1: Uh, Well, what you see in, in Taiwanese cultural productions, right, whether it's you know we could talk about pop music or television or film or just kind of the you know the way the talk shows unfold in taiwan or the daily newspapers what you see is the sense that taiwan always feels abused it always feels taken advantage of what it wants is its own independence free of american meddling and free of chinese threats and so there's this passionate desire not only for the independence, but for a sense of safety. And one of the ways that's manifesting itself now, Kurt, is that the Taiwanese president, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, has started what she's called the southbound policy. And what she's trying to do is to build alliances with um, a string of nations throughout Southeast Asia with whom they can become trading partners and cultural partners. Uh, And the thinking being that let's build our own alliances free of both China and America. Uh, And so that's what the new president is trying to build. And so far, it's been pretty successful.
0: Is that a sort of dangerous endeavor? I mean, is that likely to inflame Chinese hostility and lead to actual violence, that kind of coalition building?
1: That's exactly
0: the tripwire
1: that Taiwan faces, right? So if they aggressively go out and seek allies and friendships with say the Philippines or Indonesia or Vietnam, uh, they're cultivating partnerships in New Zealand and Australia and so on. If they go too far, then yes, that could trip the the kind of unwritten and unstated wire that would send China in. And so Taiwan is walking on a knife's edge. They want alliances, they don't want to aggravate China. But then the flip side is that they can't be passive, right? They can't let China kind of bully them into inactivity. And so this is why Tsai Ing-wen is just, I think, doing a remarkable job as president, kind of walking that tightrope of not provoking China to the point of attack, but actively seeking new allies and new friendships to, to make Taiwan a stronger partner within the region. It's an incredibly dangerous kind of tightwire act that she's walking
0: yeah not to change the subject, but to return I think to the book and and its function that your response in thinking about Taiwan is sort of on this knife's edge and balancing between setting the chinese or or somehow investing too much in the word of the United States. There's a set of acknowledgements at the beginning of your book about how much, you know, on the ground research that you've done in Asia and and the people that you've met and and how talking to them has helped informed your thinking and your understanding of Taiwan. And you make some notes there about how dangerous it could be um, for some of them should, you know, should it become known that they had participated in, you know, exposing something of, you know, China's attitudes or the kinds of goings on. Could you say a little bit about like what that danger means sort of day to day for folks you know, living under Chinese Communist Party rule?
1: Oh, yeah, Kurt, what you're asking about now is a really kind of frightening and dangerous part of contemporary life in China. And this also circles back to your earlier comments, Kurt, about Hong Kong. Uh, your listeners will probably remember during the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong, the Communist Party passed this thing called the NSL, the National Security Law. And the new national security law makes it a crime in China to talk about or support what the party calls separatism or splitism. And separatism or splitism are, are code words in China for supporting the independence of either Tibet or Hong Kong or Taiwan. So there's, for me, you know, fantastic universities in China Full of great scholars, people who know their national history and can really go through the archives and they know the history of Taiwan. And so they're, they're fantastic colleagues. They're brilliant people to talk to. But the national security law is so flexible and so vague that if I were in my acknowledgements to thank by name specific Chinese scholars for their conversations about Taiwan, it could potentially endanger them to face the consequences of this national security law. So it's just a kind of tragic reality of being a scholar in China that you have to really watch your P's and Q's lest you annoy the party. So that's why in my acknowledgements i I I wanted to thank my friends and allies for the help, but I didn't want to name them because I didn't want to be the person who got them in trouble with this national security law.
0: And what do we know what the sort of consequences of stepping wrong in regards to that law might be? I mean, are we talking about like censure and job loss or does it get even more extreme and terrifying than that?
1: We're seeing a couple things. The, The NSL, the national security law, has been applied already to arrest the pro-democracy leaders in Hong Kong. It's been used to arrest the historians and scholars and activists who founded the 1989 Tiananmen Square Massacre Museum in Hong Kong. So so museum directors have been arrested because of it. In China mainland itself, what we're seeing is professors are losing their jobs. So it's a uh, multi-pronged weapon that could be used to silence or arrest uh, depending on how heavy handed the party wants to be. But I can tell you that my friends in China are very aware of this. It's impacting what they teach, it's impacting what they write about, it's impacting how they travel. So it's having a tremendous chilling effect on intellectual life in China.
0: I feel like that sort of censorship, that sort of delicacy about what one is able to research and what one can teach, is something that we're not really accustomed to in the States. Like we've had the summer and sort of continuing the moral panic about critical race theory. And we're seeing attempts to write laws to, you know, ban the teaching of slavery in high schools. And, and we have a history of trying to ban books and things. But I don't know that educators here are in fear for their lives over what they put on their syllabuses. And I think that, you know, if, I, if we could be allowed a little immodesty, University Press Publishing is a huge part of that. And so I feel like it's important before we go to mention, you know, you edit a book series for the MSU Press on U.S.-China relations. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how your book fits into the series focus and maybe like what the plans look like for publishing in that series going forward.
1: The way I like to think about the series that we're working on is that so you've got Xi Jinping talking about, you know, the great China dream and the China's rejuvenation. And, and it just looks like a recipe for authoritarianism, right? And for and for threatening smaller countries in the region. So it's very scary time, if you think about where China's going. But it's also a scary time here in America, right? Trump just created, he kind of opened Pandora's box, right? And let the crazies out into the mass media and so American professors might not get censored by the government, but what we get here is we get trolled, and and I'm sure your readers are aware of lots of scholars who were attacked in the press and on Twitter and on Facebook, and sometimes this can have consequences for those of us in America too. So it's it's a dangerous time to be a scholar in both countries. So given that context, the function of our press is to say, since our governments can't get along... (laughs) what would it look like if global thinking scholars came together to form a culture based on mutual respect, on listening to each other, on being sensitive to each other's cultural specificities? And so what we do in our books is we try to make sure that in our edited books, we try to make sure that half of the authors are Chinese and half the authors are from the U.S. or other parts of the Western world. And we try, therefore, to guarantee that our books are are balanced and that they have a truly a global perspective on the questions we're looking at. And so what we're trying to do with the book series is to model the kind of communication that we wish our governments could have, uh, which is fact-based, evidence-driven, culturally sensitive, mutually respectful. And so we're trying to do that with our books to create this whole culture in which scholars can come together and share ideas and learn from each other and and literally kind of Map out a template of what the U.S.-China relations look like when you apply best communication practices, and so that's what we're trying to do: is to create this template
0: for good communication within and between our
1: two cultures.
0: I think that's really good. I did an interview with Gobin Yang on on, on the other another book in the series, "Engaging Social Media in China," on the last season of the podcast. That I think did another thing that you didn't mention, which is bring to a U.S. audience more and more information about a world that they probably don't understand as thoroughly as they could, and to see those connections between different ways of life. I wonder if you could give us a, a hint or, or a clue on any forthcoming volumes that you're excited about in the series? Sure. Well, well, first, just
1: let me say I'm glad you mentioned Guobin Yang. He's, he's just a hero of mine, a, a true international leader and scholar, bridging Chinese life and American life. I think his book is fantastic. If your readers want to go get it, Engaging Social Media in China, it's just a fantastic book. Uh, but in terms of the books that were about to publish, that we're really excited about, Kurt, we've got a book coming out based on a 10 chapters analyzing the US China trade war. And each chapter looks at a different part of the trade war and compares. US public opinion versus Chinese public opinion about the trade war. And what is so fascinating is it turns out that Chinese citizens are just as angry at their government about the trade war as most Americans were towards Trump about the trade war. And so it shows that both governments were kind of doing dramatic and silly things that were ending up costing their citizens jobs and money. So we're really excited about the trade war book that's going to come out. Another one we're publishing is being edited by two colleagues out of Hong Kong, and it's called Communication Innovation. And they're studying the way innovations in app developments and communication ecosystems are both harming and potentially creating possible avenues for improvement in U.S.-China relations within a series of global relationships. So what's cool about the Communication Innovation book is there's a chapter on New communication innovations between China and America as they play out in Taiwan or in North Africa, or one of the chapters addresses life in Turkey. And so this is a really cool book giving us a global look at how the U.S.-China tension impacts people all around the world.
0: Yeah, thanks for those. They both sound really fascinating. And I, and as I said, I think that the looking at different issues from multiple perspectives and getting a sense of how interconnected we are is such an important move. And the series is doing such a great job of looking at that through the lens of communication and opening up those avenues uh, for people to think of. So be on the lookout for US-China trade war and um, communication innovation and digital technology. Stephen, before we go, you know, we've talked a lot, you know, about your book and about the tensions in Taiwan. And and we talked rather more than I thought we would about Donald Trump. And, you know, now that Trump is no longer in office, and and hopefully won't be returning to office, I wonder if you could say a little bit about where the sort of US Taiwan China relationship is today and what the future looks like.
1: Yeah, that's the question, Kurt, that everybody in Washington and Beijing wants to know, right, is where is President Biden going to take this relationship? Uh, and it's been interesting to see that President Biden thus far has taken a pretty hard line against China. And Secretary of State Blinken, I think, put it really well. And he said, we want to work with China where we can. We will compete with China in the marketplace of ideas and products. And if we have to, we will have conflict as well. So the What Blinken said is there'll be three levels to this relationship, right? Hopefully partnership where we can, competition and then potential conflict. And I think that's a mature, realistic appraisal that no international relationship is gonna be singular, right? We might have parts of a trade agreement that work for both countries. We might have parts of our trade uh, relationship that are full of conflict. Likewise on military questions or cultural questions. So I think Biden and Blinken are realists. I think they're grown-ups. I think they're evidence driven. Nobody wants war in Southeast Asia. So I think the Biden administration is gonna go slowly. I think it's gonna hold firm to our own values, but I think they're not going to intentionally provoke China. The key question is this, can the Biden administration rebuild America's alliances in Asia so as to make the cost of Chinese aggression a little higher. And so what that means is we really need to firm up our relationships with India, New Zealand, Australia, Philippines, and so on. That would convince China that America is not a rogue nation. That's what they were calling us under the Trump regime. We need to persuade China and the world that America is truly back as a global leader but that we'll be a leader based in principles of reciprocity rather than bullying. And so that, that circles back Kurt, to our, our original conversation that foreign policy is all about appearance. It's all about perception. And so we need the world to trust Biden and Blinken. For that to happen, they have to act in a mature, sophisticated, uh, confident manner without bullying our allies. If we can do that, that's going to indicate to China that it has to modify its own behavior in the region so that's where I think American foreign policy is going is the pursuit of renewed alliances so as to modify but not threaten china
0: It sounds like a, a potentially hopeful and and more stable future but somewhat less exciting I mean I feel like <laughs> you don't one does not want excitement but you can see you, you could see why a leader like Donald Trump would turn to that kind of saber rattling, noise making, because it does get everyone all ginned up and engaged in tomfoolery. And it is rather more difficult to sell the promise of, you know, steady, mature, patient leadership.
1: Well, you know, it's I mean, I think you're right, Kurt. And I think the trick is for the Biden team needs to find a way behind closed doors to sell steady, mature, unspectacular leadership, right? Foreign policy ideally should not be exciting. It should just be steady and calm. But if the Biden and Blinken team was thinking creatively, what they would then do is culturally, they would find ways to make it exciting. And that would mean more exchanges of each country's bands and film stars and sports stars, more international conferences for scholars and colleagues, more exchanges for students, and that would create a real sense of excitement around U.S.-Chinese relations. i give you just a specific example. Before Donald Trump came into office, there were about 350,000 Chinese undergraduate students studying in America. I assure you that those students, when they come to America, they love it. They love our free speech. They love our lifestyle. They love our pop culture. We've got a bunch of these students on our campus. They're all so excited to be in America. And then when Donald Trump starts saying mean things and evil things, and suddenly we see a rise in anti-Asian violence, that number of students has dramatically shrunk. Wouldn't it be exciting if Blinken and Biden made a big public announcement saying our doors are open, the Statue of Liberty welcomes you, we want those Asian students back in America. Come up with some creative way to give them scholarships, you know, to, to make it more attractive to them, but make it a cultural effort to say America's arms are open, our universities are open, our faculty welcome you. That's the kind of message that we need to convince the world that America is not the land of Donald Trump and bullying and toxic masculinity, but that we're the land of the Statue of Liberty and our values. uh, We live our values. That's what we have to persuade the world of, is that we live our values in an honest, mature way.
0: You know, Stephen, I hope that uh, we've made a compelling case here today that your book is an important part of that sort of cultural effort to help bring reticent Americans around to that point of view and to, you know, renew that promise that this is a place that is, you know, welcoming and supportive and, and all of those other things that you just said. I don't think I could put it any better. And I think that's probably a good place for us to leave off today.
1: Well, thank you, Kurt. You've been a fantastic uh, partner here. You've asked great questions. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. So thank you so much to you and the Michigan State University Press.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, I really mean it when I say that I've, I've learned a ton from this conversation and I, I learned a lot from your book and uh, I encourage folks to check it out. Stephen's book, A World of Turmoil, The United States, China, and Taiwan in the Long Cold War, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press in the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.